Well, good evening, Mosaic family. How are we doing? Isn't this weather awesome? So different compared to the ice this past week. Hey, let's stand and let's worship and put our attention on King Jesus. We're gonna need y'all's voices tonight, so let's sing. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break. Broken hearts declare His praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. His every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb now. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. Open up our hearts tonight. So open up the gates. Make way before the King of Kings. It's true. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting. Battles and every knee will bow before him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow. Every knee will 
first time with us, we would love the opportunity to get to know you. So there's a couple ways that, uh, that you could do that. One um, is you can uh, text hashtag MoNew to the number on your screen, and somebody will follow up with you this week to help you get connected. But even better than that, we would love the chance to say hi to you face-to-face tonight. And um, I know it can feel awkward, like especially if you're new and you're a little unsure um, to, to come and meet someone you've never met before. But there are going to be some people at that little circle station out in the middle out there that are the friendliest people you will ever meet in your life. So all you have to do is this. Just walk up and look a little bit desperate and say hi, and they will do all the rest of the work from there. So that's all it takes. Go say hi and let them do the work. We're really glad you're here, um, and we're excited to worship with you tonight and pursue the Lord together. Um, it's been a heavy week um, with, with the, the disaster of the earthquake um, in Turkey and Syria this week. I was... Um, I, I, get little AP news alerts on my phone, and I woke up one morning to see earthquake in Turkey and was grieved, and then I saw a hundred dead, and I was grieved, and then it hit a thousand, and I was trying to cope with that number. I was trying to find a category um, for a thousand dead, and then it just, it just felt like a nightmare as that number went higher and higher and higher, and uh, I've been unable to fathom that, and then reading and hearing how desperate the need still is, um, the amount of grief that's going on there. Um, and it, it forces me um, to just wrestle, to wrestle with, with pain, to wrestle with grief that's so far outside of my control, so far out of my ability to touch. And so I think we need to just acknowledge that. And as a, a community of people seeking to follow Jesus, there are a couple of, of God-given responses that we can have. One of the first things people ask is what can we do? How can we give? Um, and so I'll tell you a little bit of how we handle that at Fellowship. It, we like to try to work with partners that we have on the ground um, that have a firsthand knowledge. We actually have four teams um, from or connected to Fellowship that are on the ground in that part of the world. I can't go into a lot of detail of who those teams are. One of them, directly uh, one of our mosaic partners is there. And so we're in communication with them and they're saying, honestly, at this point, we're not sure how to help yet. Um, and so we're in regular conversation with them and we have a disaster relief fund that we open up um, to let people give. And that money is set aside so that we can step in and send money to those partners to help. At this moment, that fund is, is very well funded. And so it's just sitting there waiting to be released um, as soon as we know a good way to help. So know that our elders are looking at that, they're working with our global outreach team to know how can we help in a practical way. And as soon as we have any more practical next steps that we can invite the body into, we will absolutely let you know what that is and, and invite all of us into that. So the other thing we can do is we can help with our hands and our money and we're working on how to do that and then we can pray. And so what I would like to do uh, is just set aside some time uh, in our service right now to pray for the people of Turkey and Syria. Um, Gary Oliver 
pointed us last week to Lectio 365 as a fantastic app just to help us encounter scripture and pray together. And Will Spicer in my community group messaged the group this morning and said, hey, if you haven't done Lectio this morning, jump on there and do it. It's a great guided prayer on how to pray for Turkey and Syria. And, and they pointed us to Romans chapter eight, uh, verse 22. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that over us um, before we spend a little bit of time praying for Turkey and Syria. Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The idea here is that all the earth has pain that is, is like the pains of childbirth, meaning it's an intense, violent pain that eventually will lead to new life. And we're still waiting for that new life and new creation. So right now, we see the pain in creation. I think that's a, a good description for the pain that's happening as a result of this earthquake. It says, not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is saying, just like creation is in pain and waiting to be redeemed, we too, who have hope in Jesus, still experience pain every day. And we're still waiting for that new life to be brought to completion that we wait for. And then he acknowledges this resource. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. Anybody felt that way this week? Thinking about Turkey and Syria? I don't, I don't even know how to pray. But it says the Spirit helps us. The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What I hear Paul saying there is when there's pain in the world and pain in our lives and we don't even know what to say to God, that's okay, just start talking to him. And the Spirit's a really good translator, and he can take our awkward and incomplete prayers and tell God exactly what the desire of our heart really is in a way that's appropriate. So what we're gonna do now is we're just gonna take some time as a congregation to pray together. Um, I'm gonna give us a couple of ways to pray, uh, let you have a couple moments, and then we'll close our time in prayer and continue to pray through singing. Uh, let's begin by praying for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Um, the intense loss and just pray for comfort in the face of that loss. Lord, there's a pain and grief that I can't fathom going on in Turkey and Syria right now. And I pray that you as the God of comfort, the God of hope, the God of new life, that you will bring comfort to those who are hurting. That you'll bring healing and comfort to those who are mourning. Lord, have mercy. Let's now pray for workers and organizations that are trying to figure out how to bring help and trying to figure out how to bring relief and for search and rescue. So take a moment to pray for those who are coming alongside to help.
Lord, we pray that in the, the midst of chaos and difficulty and, and government bureaucracies, that you will make a way for help and relief to get to those who need it. We pray for courageous people who are going to be stepping into dark and hard places who will carry the weight of the pain that they see every day, that you will just strengthen them and protect them. Provide help. Lord, have mercy. And now let's pray for those who know Christ in the area, uh, that they will represent the love and the hope of Christ um, in this incredibly dark situation that the Lord will make himself known and that people will experience the good news of Jesus in the midst of this pain. pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ um, representing and following you in this part of the world that you will strengthen them and comfort them by your spirit that you will give them the love for their neighbor to show hurting and mourning people the love of Jesus the resurrection and the life and I pray that your name will be known you showed us in the person of Jesus when you went on the cross that you don't run from our grief and pain but you step right into it and join us in it So I pray that through your body in Turkey and Syria that you will make yourself known to those hurting and that you will win people to yourself even in the midst of this pain. Lord, have mercy. And now, Lord, as we turn our eyes to you, I pray that your spirit will guide us. Help us to sing songs that honor you. And even when our hearts don't know what words to say, Lord, would your spirit draw us closer to you as we praise you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's pray for our offering tonight as Kennedy leads us. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we could give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with us as we sing? teach you a new chorus tonight. It'll be familiar. We're going to sing it throughout the evening, so go ahead and start kind of learning. I want to teach it to you now. Hallelujah, we exalt
for my daily bread. I depend on you. Yes, I depend on you for the sun to rise for my sleep at night. I depend on you. I depend on you. Let's confess this. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the well that never runs dry. I'm the branch and you are the vine. Draw me close and teach me to abide.
I'm Travis Jenkins. I uh, have been going to fellowship for 25 years. I was a uh, shepherding elder. I'm a shepherding elder now, but I was on the governing board many years ago. Uh, I uh, have been blessed, and I have uh, hopefully blessed others with the things that I've been involved in here. Uh, chorus, uh, youth ministry, grief share, and um, the um, prayer team at this time. And I'm happy to read the word of God, Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So he, the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me my, what my dream is, was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards of great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know whether you can interpret it for me. 
the astrologers answered the king, there's not a man on earth who can do the thing the king asks. No king, however great or mighty, has ever asked a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king very angry, and he was furious, and so he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned home and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy for the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the Lord of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Travis. You all can take a seat. I'm excited to continue on in the book of Daniel with you after Dr. Oliver set it up last week. Um, this book is, I mean, it's one of the most fun books in the whole Bible and also one of the most difficult books in the whole Bible. So we're going to have a lot of fun over the next few weeks. Um, and we've said one of the big themes is that God's people have been taken into exile. What that means is that because of their sin and disobedience, that God allowed the Babylonians, a neighboring empire, to come in and conquer them destroy the temple, destroy their city, and take several of the Jewish people off to live in the court of the Babylonians. And one of the, the theological questions they're wrestling with was if we worshipped Yahweh, the God of, of heavens, the God of heaven and earth, and he was supposed to keep us safe, what does it mean that we have been defeated does that mean that Yahweh was defeated, that he's no longer in charge? That question is the underlying question of the entire book of Daniel. When the world seems out of control, is God still in control? Now, that's the question that all of this is wrestling with, and it comes at it from several different angles. And the follow-up application question that many of the stories that we look at are going to be asking is, how then should we, as people of God, live when the world seems out of control? And that's what the example of Daniel and his friends is going to give us. Not just are we answering the question, is God in control? But we're also asking, how do we live as people of faith who believe God is still in control? Now, if you have your Esther and Daniel books with you, um, I welcome you to jump in, to open them up. There's a place to take notes in there. You'll see that tonight we are supposed to cover chapters 2, 7, and 8. So here's what we're doing. I hope everybody got the email this week that we are combining first and second hour. Yes, and so I'm gonna preach for an hour and a half 
and we'll get out of here around 7.30. Everybody good? You don't have any plans? Okay, we'll go to plan B then. I'll just be honest with you, I can't get chapter eight tonight. So what we're gonna do is we have a podcast called Footnotes, and what we use that podcast for is when there is stuff that we feel like needs to be addressed that we just simply can't hit in the time that we have on Saturday night, we have a follow-up discussion that we record and post. And so we're going to handle chapter eight and some of the details we can't get to tonight in a follow-up podcast. I'll also point you to a couple other resources. Daniel is so deep and there are so many questions to explore that we really can't do it in the space of a gathering on Saturday night. But we are so blessed to have a ministry here called the Training Center. And what the Training Center does is it provides classes that allow us to explore the scriptures in more depth than we're able to do in a worship service. And there are several classes I would point you to. There's our panorama of the Bible class that goes Genesis to Revelation. But then Robert Cup, who wrote that curriculum, has taken each section of panorama and written a six-week class on that section. And so there, there is a panorama, it's called Panorama Plus 8, you can find it online. If you want help finding it, you can, uh, you can email me and I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. But that class, he goes into great detail on the book of Daniel and answers a lot of these questions. And uh, so I, w- I would point you to that for more detail than we can do here. But let me explain to you why 2, 7, and 8 are grouped together. Chapters 2 and chapter 7 form an almost perfect parallel. We'll see that as we go forward. Both of them involve dream visions looking at the kingdoms of this world and the way history is going to play out. And it's showing that what Israel is experiencing right now under Babylon is actually a part of a much bigger plan. So two and seven complement each other perfectly, and eight takes one aspect of that plan and blows it up in more detail. So they really are all a part of a theme, and that's the reason for taking them together. They are all dealing with what is the role of the Gentile nations in God's plan. When I say Gentile, I mean the non-Jewish people, the people who are not a part of Israel. That's the question that chapters two, seven, and eight are all asking. Where do all of these empires fit in the plan of God? So we're gonna focus in on two and seven tonight, and you can follow up uh, with that podcast that'll be coming out this week. Um, you can, you can uh, find it in Mo News, in our, our news page. You'll see a link to it. Um, I think you can also search wherever you get your podcast, uh, Mosaic Footnotes, and it'll, it'll come up for you. So we're gonna take a look at chapters two and chapter seven. You heard it read. I wanna start um, and look at King Nebuchadnezzar's reply. He has this nightmare that deeply troubles him. He calls together all of the, quote, wise men of Babylon. And here's what we know about Babylon. Um, They were obsessed with reading signs. They wanted to know how to read dreams, how to read all kinds of different cultish-type signs. They'd take livers and put them in a cup and light them on fire and try to find signs and the shapes, all kinds of stuff like that. Because the thought was that there's an order and structure to the universe, And if you can just get in line with that structure, things will go well for you. Um, Has anyone else ever tried to do something like this? Um, As a kid, we we, we do this in the church, right? Have you ever had this experience? Like you're trying to decide, should I date that person or not? God, please tell me. (laughs) Good people obtain favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. What do you do with that? I've also done the um, flip a coin. So God, if it's heads, your answer is yes. If it's tails, your answer is no. Um, I've done the Lord. I really need to know what I should do next. So if the phone rings in the next two minutes, you're telling me yes. Has anybody ever done that before? Come on, admit it. This is a place to be honest. It's safe here. 
Okay, um, by the way, I think that completely misses the notion of God's will as it's revealed in Scripture. You see, what that assumes is, is that there is, there is some path of prescribed decisions that if I can slide into that path just right, everything will go well for me, but I might accidentally miss it and not even realize it. But the concept of God's will in Scripture has much less to do with describe, finding some hidden maze route that we didn't know was there and much more to do with having our character transformed to being the kind of person that pleases God with our life and decisions. That's what scripture calls us to in knowing God's will. So it's not flipping coins, it's being shaped. But the Babylonians very much were, had this way of thinking. They wanted to discover the will of the gods and they had experts in doing it. So when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, he calls together all of the experts who know how to read the signs. But he does something very surprising and very outside of the script. He calls together his experts, and he says, this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. This boy's playing hardball. What he says is, here's the way it normally would work. They had books upon books that told them every possible image you could have in a dream. And it had a code. This image means this, this image means that. So when they would interpret a dream, all they would do is they would sit down with the person, they'd say, tell me your dream. And they'd flip through the pages really quick and say, okay, a hawk means this. Okay, and then there was a tall tree. Okay, and they'd go find the tall tree and that's how they'd interpret the dream. And that's what they thought their job was. They show up to do that and Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not gonna tell you the dream. I want you to tell me the dream. Nothing in their training prepared them to do this. They had no way of answering that challenge and they were terrified because it was a life or death matter. What's going on here? I suspect that what's being exposed here is the sham of the game all of them had been playing. Nebuchadnezzar knew there was nothing supernatural in that. He knew it didn't take any incredible divine insight to grab a stack of books off the shelf and look up a bunch of symbols. There was this big game they were all playing of these rituals and these patterns that helped give them some sense of confidence that they were following the will of the gods. But something about this dream was so clearly supernatural that Nebuchadnezzar knew he couldn't play games with this. He knew he, he, he had heard something from God in this dream and he would not accept the old patterns that they had been to. He needed a touch of something supernatural to give insight into what was happening. So he refused to play along with the script and said, I need guidance from God to understand this dream. When I was reading this chapter, I felt a just pain of fear streak through me. It reminded me of something that Robert Cup, who planted fellowship almost 40 years ago, used to always say, that I didn't understand back then. I theoretically understood a little bit of it, but I didn't really get it. When people would ask Robert, what is your biggest fear for this church? His answer was always the same. He said that his greatest fear is that the spirit of God would no longer be moving in the people of fellowship that there would be nothing of the presence of Christ, nothing supernatural happening in what we were doing, 
and that none of us would notice. That we would be so good at running our programs that we would become experts at saying, hey, let's all get together for a big gathering and we're gonna play some music that's kind of like you 2 in Coldplay and has a really big build where we sing the same refrain over and over again and we'll get really pumped up about it. And then a speaker will come out and give a 30-minute TED Talk and he'll have the right balance of humor and poignancy to make us feel like something happened. We'll have awesome kids programs. Our kids will behave a little bit better. And we'll even have like a, a country club style small group during the week where we all can hang out and have a potluck together and feel like we have community. And we would have these programs that we would run through every week. And as long as the programs were working, as long as people kept showing up to the worship services, as long as they kept singing the songs and listening to the messages, and as long as they kept going to the small groups and homes, we would be convinced that we were walking with God. While the people of this church had no relationship with the living God. He said his fear is that that would happen and none of us would even notice. And as I read Daniel 2, that, that struck fear into me. Could we ever become the kind of church that knew how to run excellent programs and wanted to, to grow this place like a business that needed to watch the bottom line and make sure that we're moving forward and completely neglect the living God? Let's move on to the next verse. Because I think the answer is here. Because in contrast to the way the fortune tellers and wise men handled the problem, they went to their books and their programs and their institutions, but look at how Daniel responded in verse 17. Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What is the one thing that we can do as followers of Jesus that demands connection with the living God? The one thing that breaks through all the programs and planning? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is that rhythm of our life where we stop and acknowledge, God, you are here and I need you. Prayer is the thing that will turn any of those, by the way, I said it a little bit tongue in cheek describing all those things we do in church. Not for the purpose of belittling any of those things because I believe in all of those programs and all of those steps, but to say that any of those things with God plucked out of them can keep working But prayer, that turning to the Lord and saying, God, I need you, changes every single one of those activities. It changes everything. It acknowledges our absolute dependency on God for any of those programs to have any supernatural significance at all. And I know, I mean, it is so one-to-one -one in my own personal life that my awareness that I desperately need God matches the commitment that I have to prayer. 
If I'm really honest, when I am bored with prayer, when I am not pursuing prayer, I usually am also not aware that I need God. Cognitively, sure, I I can tell you that I need God, but I've lost a sense of that need in my life. And we see this happen over and over again, and and it's it's a beautiful thing about being in the body of Christ, that when, when people hit a desperation point, whether it's because of a relationship or a health crisis or a financial need, they reach out for prayer and people pray. And we, and we have this sense whenever a crisis in life highlights our need for God, we learn to pray. My, my prayer life has so often looked like that. Crisis makes me aware that I need God and it amps up my prayer life. And then God is incredibly faithful and sees me through the crisis and then I go, whew, glad that's over. And I return back to the rhythms of not praying. And one of the things, I'm, I'm skipping ahead here, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll make this brief because I don't want to steal other people's thunder. Um, the book of Daniel is so interwoven. But one of the things we're going to see in Daniel's life is that he prayed every day the same way that he prayed in crisis. That so much of the spiritual life of walking with God is maintaining an awareness that we need God and going to him every day, not just in the moments of crisis. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't turn to God in prayer and crisis. Of course we should. But spiritual growth happens. We become transformed when we continue to go to him, even when the crisis is over. When we choose a maturity of faith recognizes I still need God, even when I don't feel desperate for God. And prayer guides us in that path of acknowledging our need for God. And so we see that modeled in Daniel as he goes to his friends and he says, pray. Pray with me and pray for me. And God answers, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And I think there's another insight here. What did Daniel do when he turned to God in a time of need and prayer and God came through? He praised, he worshiped, he followed through and gave credit. There is a a cycle that gets maintained here of when we seek God in need and he is faithful and we let that fuel praise of him, that keeps our eyes turned to him. When our gratitude for what he has done in the past matches our desperation in our time of need, you get this flywheel thing that happens where it fuels us into greater intimacy with God. And, And look Look at Daniel's praise. Two attributes of God get highlighted here. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Wisdom and power are the two themes that stand out in Daniel's prayer. That God is wise, he knows all, and he knows how everything should play out, and he's powerful, he's able to accomplish it. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. There went my notes, so we're going to be here forever now. I'll grab them in a minute. The praise... The moment to pause and praise fuels 
the stability that is going to come for the rest of Daniel's experience. And he's going to maintain that recognition in public, in his public work that he had in his private work. Look what happens when he goes before King Nebuchadnezzar. He has the opportunity now, as he's standing before the king, and as he's asked, can you do this? And look at Daniel's response to this question about his ability. Notice he's asked about his capability and Daniel's response. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Because Daniel recognized his need, he went to God for help. Because he recognized God's provision, he praised him for what he had done. And then when given an opportunity in, other, in front of other people, he gave credit to God for his work in his life. There is a model in here for what it looks like to walk with God among non-believers. For what it looks like to walk with God among a place that doesn't know him. Now, I want, I want to jump forward to chapter 7. Because we, the parallel we're going to see happen here follows up in chapter 7. In chapter 2, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream that needs interpretation. In chapter 7, much, much later, Daniel is going to have his own dream. In chapter 7, verse 1, we read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. I want you to see the setup to the two dreams. The dream given to Nebuchadnezzar which Daniel is able to interpret, and then a dream given to Daniel. Because there's going to be, in these two dreams, several significant overlaps. But there's going to be several significant differences. But we're going to, we're going to look at all the different, uh, the, the size of the statue and the different beasts and how they overlap. But before we even take a look at that, I want to hear from an Old Testament commentator, Trimper Longman. Which, by the way, can we just take a moment to appreciate that name, Trimper Longman III? That is a name. When you read biblical studies, you get to encounter names like Trimper Longman III. Okay, this guy is a great commentator on Daniel, and he makes this observation that I think we need to pause and take in before we look at the really cool stuff about statues, beasts, and the end of the world. He says, however, we must not let our curiosity concerning God's revelation of future events distract us from the main theme of the chapter. Only God's wisdom can reveal the mysteries of life. In other words, it's not the content of the revelation of the future that is primary. What is most important here is the fact that it is only Daniel's God that knows the future. In the context of this story, why would we need all of the setup about the conversation with Nebuchadnezzar? If all that mattered was the information about the statue, skip right to that. But the bulk of the chapter in chapter 2 is given to this conflict between the wise men of Babylon that fail and God who succeeds in telling the dream. The point of all of this is to answer, not to give us our curious information about kings and empires in the future, it's to answer the question, who is in charge when the world goes crazy? And the answer is God is. He knows the end from the beginning and he is over it all. And now we can jump to the fun stuff, right? Okay, so when we look at the two dreams... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he sees a statue. 
And this is, by the way, we're entering into a, a genre of literature in the Bible called apocalyptic. And the way apocalyptic works is you get images um, that describe what is happening in the spiritual realm. By the way, um, I, I have heard people say, always take the Bible literally. I've never met anyone who always takes the Bible literally. I don't know anyone who argues that in the 6th century BC, a lion with eagle's wings was trampsing around the world eating people. What I, think, what I think we mean when we say always take the Bible literally, what I think they're trying to say is let the Bible speak in its own terms. Always take it seriously and always let it speak. But apocalyptic genre is symbolic. It gives images that are meant to point to something else. And so what this image says, we have a statue on one side. On the other side, in chapter 7, we have four beasts that are conquerors. And as Daniel's given the interpretation of these dreams, what we're told is that they represent kingdoms of the world. Now, at the time that this is written, this is being spoken to Babylon. So we're explicitly told the head of gold, he looks at Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, that's you. You are the head of gold. And then he says, but there are going to come kingdoms after you. The second one is described as having in this statue, there's a chest of silver and then belly and thighs of bronze and then legs of iron. And then there are feet with mixed iron and clay. We have parallel corresponding beasts given in the vision of chapter seven. As we follow the trajectory of history, what we see is that God is laying out the major world empires that will conquer and rule over Israel. First, there's the Babylonian Empire that was then conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and then followed by the Greek Empire and then finally the Roman Empire. Now, I put some question marks down there because there's some debate about the very end of these visions. That fourth beast, the one that uh, represents Rome, has a little bit more detail given. You have the legs of iron, but then you also have feet of mixed iron and clay. Uh, You have that terrifying beast with iron teeth, but then you get these details about 10 horns that represent 10 kings and a little horn that's going to conquer three of them. And people debate, is that more detail about the Roman Empire or is that describing some fifth and future empire? And I'm gonna, we're going to walk through a little bit why that debate happens and takes place. But at first, we just want to get this snapshot of the four, empire, or the four empires drawn here. And I want to draw our attention to the central contrast. In the mind of a pagan king who does not worship Yahweh and rules an empire, what do the empires of the world look like? They look like an idol. That's where you have statues of humans. It looks like an idol that you'd worship. Notice in chapter 3, what is Nebuchadnezzar going to go build? A giant statue of gold. In the mind of the unbelieving king, the empires of the world look like something beautiful and glorious. What did the empires of the world look like in the mind of Daniel, the man of God? Ravenous beasts that devour everything in their path. Do you think there might be a lesson for us in there on how the world views empire and how God views empire? And so the most significant and in my mind exciting aspect of these visions is what immediately follows 
the picture of empire. Because after we get the description of these four empires to come, both visions are followed up by something significant to come after these empires. In Daniel chapter 2, verses, verse 44, we read this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. I'm going to read that again. I want you to take it in. In the time of those kings, which kings? The, the four empires. In the time of those four empires, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is another kingdom. Every one of these four empires gets conquered by someone else. The Babylonian empire is strong for a while, and the Persians come in and knock it out. Persians look good, the Greeks come in and knock it out. But the, the, the interpreter tells Daniel, in the time of those kings, God's going to start a different kind of kingdom. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. In the vision, there is a rock taken, and it is slung at the feet of the statue. And it shatters the feet and breaks all the empires of the world. What's the implication? Well, the bottom of the statue is associated with Rome. So it seems to be saying that during the time of Rome, God's going to establish a kingdom that knocks all the other kingdoms out. Let the weight of this sink in. This is in the 500s B.C., and God is telling Daniel that during a fourth empire to come from Babylon that we know is the Roman Empire, God is going to establish his kingdom that will last forever. Something similar is said in Daniel chapter 7, but the image looks a little different. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, we read, this is the conclusion of Daniel's vision. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That phrase, son of man, is a Hebrew and Aramaic phrase that means someone that looks like a human. So he looks up into heaven, and he sees someone that looks like a human approaching, I'm sorry, coming with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God himself, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you get it? Daniel has two visions of the major empires of the world. And in both visions, God intercedes in a way that changes everything. In the first one, a rock is slung during the time of the Roman Empire that destroys the empires of the world. In the second vision, you see someone that is human-like approaching God and being given authority to rule the world forever. Fast forward 550 years. When Jesus shows up and he begins to preach, we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That's our word gospel, proclaiming the gospel of God. What is Jesus' message? Repent, 
The, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus just shows up with no setup and no definition, and he says the kingdom of God is here, and people freak out. Why did they go crazy when he said the kingdom of God has come? Because they had read Daniel. He is announcing in Mark chapter 1, it's happening right now. The rock that crushes empires, the son of man who will go to the father is here in your midst. And yet he has to say a little coded about it. But as he begins to teach, he explains some things about this kingdom we did not expect In Matthew chapter 13, he describes a little bit more about what the kingdom is going to look like. Uh, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He says the kingdom of God, you know the rock that's going to crush the empires? It's going to start out like a seed. It's not going to come in big with fanfare the way you might think. It's actually going to start incredibly small and grow. We read further in Mark chapter 13, verses 26 to 27. This is very near the, the end of his life. And at this point, he's ready to let the mystery go, to drop the curtain and show people what's going on. Look at what he says. He's describing what will happen at the end of time. And he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Where have we heard that before? He's quoting Daniel 7. He's saying at the end, you're going to see Daniel 7, the Son of Man, coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then, when Jesus is on trial in Mark chapter 14, and they are asking him, do you claim to be the Son of God? They're striking him. It says the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the blessed, the son of the blessed one? And look at Jesus's response. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Now here's the surprise. The thing that you wouldn't have seen coming from chapter 2 and chapter 7. The king's supposed to show up and crush Rome, right? He's supposed to smash the empires of the world. And here is Jesus in Mark chapter 14 saying, I'm it. I am the son of man of Daniel 7, which means I'm the rock of Daniel 2, here to crush empires and set up the kingdom of God that will last forever. And they tie him up and they hand him over to Rome, the kingdom he's going to crush, right? He goes before Caesar, or I'm sorry, before Pilate in John chapter 18, and Pilate asks him, so are you a king or not? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, my people would fight. Things are starting to get a little weird at this point. The expectations are getting disrupted. 
And the king who was supposed to crush the empire was crushed by the empire. Rome strung him up on a cross and killed him. How does that fit? With the rock that's supposed to crush Rome, with the the Son of Man given power and glory. After his resurrection, after he rose from the dead, Jesus was with his disciples. They had to have had the same question. They had to have been just perplexed how all this works. And then he rises from the dead and they're going, ah, now we get it. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, they come to him with what seems to me to be a very straightforward question. It's the same question I'd be asking. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, so are you now gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Does that question make sense now in light of seeing Daniel and the preaching of Jesus? They think he's gonna establish the kingdom and then they're totally disappointed because he gets crucified and they're, they're going, what? all of our hopes are dashed. And then he rises from the dead and they're going, this is it, now the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the ends of the earth. And then he hops on a cloud and rides to heaven. Confused? Perplexed? Later on in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen, the first martyr, was being killed for his faith, as he prays, preparing to die for his Lord, in verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What does that sound like to you? That's Daniel 7. The Son of Man rode on the clouds and approached the Ancient of Days where he was given authority and power and glory. And he sent the Holy Spirit to give us power, to tell people about his glory. Why? Why this delay? Why did the kingdom not come all at once? The answer is right there in Acts chapter 1. It was for you and me. Because there are so many people that God wants to be a part of this kingdom. It is as if Daniel's chapters two and seven started a a, a countdown clock to the end. Counting down to the time when the kingdom of this world will be wiped out. And it is as if when Jesus rose from the dead, he took the batteries out of that clock. He said, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna set this up on the shelf for a while. And y'all don't need to know when I'm gonna turn it back on. You've got work to do. Go tell people the good news. And there will come a day at a time that none of us know and anyone who tells you that they're knowing are either confused or lying, there will come a day when Jesus puts the battery back in the clock. Revelation chapter 11 describes that day. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever. This is the reason there's confusion around that last part of the kingdoms because it's unclear. It seems like that fourth beast has somehow been stretched out. Uh, Maybe it'll be reestablished at the end. That's what a lot of people think is somehow something like the fourth beast will come back at the time when Jesus returns. 
Because right now we live in this odd in-between time when Jesus has launched his kingdom, like the mustard seed said, and yet the kingdoms of the earth are still allowed to go on. That leaves us in a very odd place, doesn't it? What it tells us is none of the kingdoms of this earth are our kingdom. No kingdom on earth is the kingdom of God. And our loyalty is to him. Now, oftentimes, this truth about the kingdom of God leads to some really weird applications in Christians. Because for some reason, we end up in one of two extremes. We've talked about this before. Either people get too obsessed with trying to build a kingdom on earth now, and they lose sight of the fact that the kingdoms of this earth are going to fail. And so they start trying to enforce God's kingdom on other people by seizing power in the name of Jesus. And their intentions might start out well, but this almost always goes sideways when people try to use the kingdoms of earth to enforce the kingdom of God. It's almost always dangerous. I'm going to say it's always dangerous. So on the one hand, they can get too obsessed with building kingdoms on earth now. On the other hand, they can be so obsessed with waiting for the kingdom of God that they quit being faithful to God now. And they think the answer to this passage, the answer to this truth of the kingdom of God is to build a bunker and gallons of water and hunker down and wait for the rapture. We'll talk about the rapture later. So what is the application? What are we supposed to do with this reality that we belong to the king in heaven and we wait for his kingdom? Well, wouldn't you know Jesus gave us the answer? In Matthew chapter 6, in the section, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, are Jesus' sermon on living in light of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus said. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It is so ironic to me that when Christians read passages like Daniel that talk about the future, their response is to become panicked and worried about the future. You'll see these like prophecy watch newsletters that have everybody stirred up looking for the Antichrist in the news panicked and worried. And scripture, what the whole point of knowing that Jesus is king in heaven and that he's coming back is that we don't have to worry. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to be faithful so that whatever happens, we keep seeking his kingdom. And in fact, that's what we see Daniel do. Daniel has all of this crazy stuff that is being revealed to him in the midst of an evil empire. And what is his answer? Well, I'll keep praying and being faithful to the Lord. That's why I think Gary's challenge to us last week would be a great one to keep up for this entire time. What if our response to everything we're going to say in the book of Daniel is as simple as, wow, I need to pursue Jesus. What if it was, I'm just going to make sure I start the first 10 minutes of my day saying, Jesus, you're my king, and I want to seek you today. And what if we became, when everyone else around us is freaking out about how unstable everything is, what if we became a church that was steady on, 
that was faithful and courageous because our God is king. Because Jesus is king right now. And his kingdom will come to earth. So today, we seek him. Lord, may it ever be so. Would you meet us as we pursue you with all our hearts? May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Our God is the author, the first and the last. His works, they resound through generations past. From creation to the Savior, to the world we now see. Our God is sovereign in the power that he Our God is the healer who will never change. Defender of the weak and a shield for us sake. And he binds up the broken and raises the dead. Well, if our God is for us, then who can be?
sing this together. You are the king, Lord, you're the king of our hearts, the king of our lives, and we are thankful to follow and serve a king. We love you, God. Praise things in your son, Jesus' name, amen. Church, thanks for coming tonight. We're excited to uh, see you guys here. We'll worship together next week, so let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, thanks be to, thanks God. Be to God. See you next week, church.